I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. The Evening Standard Rugby Podcast with Lawrence Delalio. Well, hello, everyone. We knew it was going to be an epic quarterfinal weekend. And my word, those games were spectacular. Alas, it was heartbreak for Wales, Ireland and France as England became the only Six Nations team to progress to the next round. That didn't sound too smug, did it? Yes, it did, unfortunately. <laughs> Coming from an Englishman. <laughs> I'm, of course, in the studio uh, and still smiling after this weekend's results. Is Sarah Elgin? Well, yeah, I'm just about smiling. Like, yeah. We, we feel for you. I've had really better weekends, do. I'm not going to lie. But. Yeah, and looking, uh, I've got to say, a little bit worse for wear after um, traipsing around Marseille and watching England. Uh, the Evening Standard, Steve Cording. Steve, talk us through it. What a fantastic weekend to be an Englishman. It was great to actually experience the Rugby World Cup. I'd never been to Marseille before. It's yeah. cool, it, isn't it? Interesting, yeah. interesting Edgy, town. edgy. Edgy, yeah. yeah. They like their graffiti down there, don't they? So, And but, you looked um, like you were enjoying yourself, so that was good. We did. Uh, myself and my wife, Eleni, yes, we took our headwear, so we were standing out from I the saw. crowd. Yes, I saw, I saw. It was very good. Do, you're going to laugh at this, lol, okay? This is how vacant I am. I, I don't need me to tell you Sense that. Sense of direction, <laughs> gone completely off. No, so... I met up with Ben, right, on the on the Friday before the game on the Saturday. And I was like, oh, where are you staying, Ben? And he was like, oh, I'm staying at where you fell off the scooter. And I was like, I've never been to Marseille before. What are you talking about? <laughs> and he said, what? You've never been to Marseille before. He's like, you were here two years ago in the European final. I was like, oh, of course. I literally forgot him because, in fairness, we didn't see much of Marseille for that European final, did we? We were like, got that stadium, but to home. But I'd actually forgotten that I'd been to Marseille before. How vacant is that? I love that. Do you know what? <laughs> I went into the weekend expecting three, if not four, of the Northern Hemisphere teams to win. So I'm gutted because, as you know, I've got a little bit of Irish in the family. So I'm gutted about them. My grandmother's French, so I was gutted for them. I'm obviously a, a surrogate Welsh supporter now because I've had the shirt on mm-hmm. and, it, and it's made my heart grow even bigger. Yeah. Uh, and I can sing now. Well, not like you, Sarah. So I was gutted for Wales. I was watching Wales Argentina with my son Enzo, who was 22 on Friday. We went to the game on Saturday. We were in the Argentinian end, and they were brilliant. The fans were excellent. They were singing a song that loosely translates as "Stand up if you want to kill the English." How do you know that? Did you Google it? Well, no, because I speak a bit of Italian, and they were singing in Spanish, and I kind of understood what it meant. (laughs) I speak a bit of Italian, and I said they were speaking in Spanish. So similar. And I said to I said to him, "Does that translate? Does that translate?" as you want to stand up if you want to kill the English. He said, yes, it does. I said, well, I'm English. Okay, so we won't be standing up. <laughs> but, but as it happened, they killed, they killed the Welsh. Oh, oh, oh. There's a new it's bit so there, the French grandmother. We've not heard that one before. No. Yeah. That's a new one. Yeah. Do you know what? The Welsh fans, for the first time, 
after 13, the second half, they just went quiet. And I thought... They did go I was quiet. Gutted. I was gutted. And I felt like the Argentinians actually just worked off the emotion of the Argentinian crowd as well. Yeah. So, but you obviously know, you'll be supporting England now, Sarah, like your fellow Welshman that I was sat next to who was supporting Fiji um, on Sunday, which wasn't a surprise really, I suppose. What was it? Um, Nick Noel said to us, didn't he, that everybody hates the English, but... That's not can true. Can you get behind us? <laughs> can, you, can you get you behind us You guys are the only now? Northern Hemisphere side left now, aren't you? So, so it's that's like... still not a yes. <laughs> Should we ask our next next guest? Let's ask him how he feels about it. Right, our guest this week is a man who knows a thing or two about big performances. With 133 cats for Ireland, 15 years playing for both club and country and four tours with the British and Irish Lions. And that's just the top line on his career. It's Brian O'Driscoll. Hi, Brian. How are you? Hi, Sarah. I thought you were going to introduce me, a guy that knows a thing or two about losing in a World Cup quarterfinal. (laughs) (laughs) I'd imagine you've had better weekends, right, to be fair? I have, but it's not as bad as a player. You know, it's funny. You always miss these big occasions. Even nearly 10 years later, you miss the big occasions and you look on enviously and you kind of you know wish you could go back in time and relive them. And then as soon as the final whistle goes on a loss like that, you are so thankful that you don't have that same emotion that you had as a player. It's of course, as a country, we're sad, but it's a completely different level, particularly this team and the hype and the expectation and their inner belief for them to be knocked out in a quarterfinal again is devastating. Yeah, because that's one of the main things I wanted to ask you, because, I mean, you know, you've been there, you've been in, in, in their position. Um, how do you deal with something like this as a player? What what will they be going through now, what, 48 hours after it? How do they get over it? I have to say, I think it's much worse for these guys than it was for us. If I look back to our quarterfinal losses, obviously the setup was different in 99. So it was like a kind of semi round of 16 before a quarterfinal. We lost Argentina. And then um, 03, we got absolutely smashed uh, by France in the quarterfinal. So it wasn't close. And then 2011, we didn't fire a shot against Wales. And they kind of were relatively comfortable for the vast majority of the game. So if I look back to my three experiences of, or two experiences of it, we can't have really felt too sorry for ourselves. We just didn't turn up. Whereas this team turned up, they delivered a performance, having given a 13 point lead to the All Blacks. They got back in it and they could have robbed it. And I think just because of the 17 in a row, the Grand Slam, the series win, all, all of that expectation was built in their heads. They were not thinking, oh, we need to get to that elusive World Cup semi-final. They were thinking, we need to get to a final, we need to win it. And it's hard to think how there will be a better opportunity for an Irish team in the coming years than the one that presented itself this time around. And that's what makes it all the more sickening for us as supporters, but very much so as players, particularly those that are now retiring or soon to be retired. Draco, we're all absolutely gutted for Ireland. You know, there's a piece of Ireland in in all of us, really. And it was an incredible performance against what was an equally outstanding All Blacks team. There's no doubt, much like the France-South Africa one, it was probably worthy of of being a final in itself. If we break it down, I mean, I I seem to remember the opening passage of play 30 phases from the All Blacks, probably some of the best rugby they played. and, And it only gave up three points. And I thought, wow, wow, that is incredible. And then... The last phase of the game, 37 phases for Ireland, and they just fell short, weren't able to get over the line. When I look back at the the amount of minutes that were played throughout the World Cup by Ireland, Johnny Sexton was still on the pitch. So many of their players, because of the group they had, because of the tough matches they had, 
they weren't able to rotate in the same way as New Zealand were. Do you think that might have just at the end of the day been the difference between the two teams? To be honest with you, La, I think that was their choice. You know, lots of teams had four warm-up matches and quite high octane, you know, physical, confrontational to get themselves ready for the first pool match. If it was big in, in the case of New Zealand and, and France, that was definitely their kind of role remit. Um, whereas with Ireland... You know, we'd won really tough game against England and it, and it didn't actually end up being probably the opposition that we'd anticipated. So I think they did go in a fraction undercooked, but with the knowledge that they had a couple of games to get ready and get up to speed for South Africa, which is exactly what they did. You can always retrospectively look back and think, well, was it you know, too many miles on the clock? We had two weeks between South Africa and Scotland as well. It was the dream run of fixtures, if you're honest. To win that third game against the world champions then, to set it up against Scotland and then win comfortably, get everyone subbed off that you wanted save for a quarterfinal and the 50th minute. Like, you can't have asked for a whole lot more. It was always going to be a tight affair against the All Blacks. They were never going to roll over. They had a point to prove having lost a series last year. You know, some punchy things were said to some of their individual players. Joe Schmidt, you know, was is part of their coaching ticket. Again, some lots of things have been said about him and his tenure over the course of the last year or so. Some inferred, some said more bluntly. So there was no shortage of motivation. On top of it, Ireland were the number one team in the world. And we talked a bit about that and people go, well, that's not the time. But irrespective, there was a newfound respect, I think, for this Irish team in the last year where their consistency of performance reflected in in the results that they had. So all of that into the melting pot, it was going to always be a great game between an all, any all-black team and this Irish team. And unfortunately, they just managed to, to get it done. We had the chance to steal it. I mean, if you look, if you break it down, was it the odd penalty goal here and there? Do you think being held up over the line? I mean, do you think... That, that- right, that. I think it's, it's being held up over the line. If you look at chances and opportunities like you can't be given a better chance than a rolling mall that you've already had a penalty try from and then you get a second one moving forward and your hooker breaks out and and goes over the line and and it's one of the great tackles it really is but I think if you ask any hooker the world over they feel as though if you're going to break away from the mall like that you got to score it and so there's a little bit of you know, irritation, I'm sure, from an Irish perspective, but also huge plaudits to Geordie Barrett. What a tackle that was. And then to reinforce a mistake with another one immediately with Doris's drop pass on the, on the halfway line and just completely taking the sting out of Ireland's attack. So for me, those two moments, you could look back to silly penalty given away and characteristic by Connor Murray to give them three points. Johnny missed a, a penalty that he'd usually knock over in his sleep. So listen, there's other factors to it, but we can't say that we didn't have our chances to go and win it. And the frustrating thing, talking about 37 phase at the end, it was remarkable from both sides to defend for that long without giving away a penalty, to attack with that accuracy and concentration with exhausted bodies. Again, phenomenal but you have to be within two, three points in those situations. You have to fire a shot with a drop goal because inevitably, you know, the defences are so hard to break down in that regard. And someone's going to get access to a rook. Someone's going to knock the ball on, which unfortunately transpired. And Ireland kind of limps out of the World Cup without actually really pressing the line, which is 
which is a frustration on on some of the other errors that built up to that moment. Brian, you're obviously desperately disappointed for Ireland, but how um, objectively looking at at the All Blacks' performance? I mean, they didn't they didn't make one handling error in the entire game, which I just cannot believe. Yeah, only five scrums as well, and um, five scrums in the entire game. Sam Kane just stepped up as captain. I mean, how impressed were you with their performance, considering the flack that they were getting them back at home in New Zealand for a lot of the last year, losing to France in the opening game, but they just seemed to click on the night, didn't they? They really did, and. You know, there was clear as daylight that they targeted our rook. You know, the rook speed of Ireland in being able to get into their multi-phase has been a real strength of theirs over the last year or so. And so Joe Schmidt in the coaching ticket knew that Ireland's Achilles heel, certainly during his tenure, was that crazy physicality that side sometimes brought. We saw it a few times against France, against England, against the All Blacks. And so that starts at the collision zone, but then what happens after that at the Rook? And we did a piece on, on ITV talking about Ireland's ability at the Rook and how many jacklers they had. 12 of the 23 had at least one steal over the course of the tournament. Well, it was all about New Zealand in the first 20 minutes at the Rook. Three turnovers, Sevilla, uh, Ritalik, Sam Kane, huge moments against the run of play, turning momentum and getting, you know, possession and territory. Yeah, you just have to pay, you know, tip your cap and, and pay respect to a team that analyzed us very well. Shut down Kalen Doris as well. That was the other thing, you know, stopped him in his tracks. He had a quiet game by his standards. He's the go forward that we've kind of relied on, you know, most consistently. And they just completely negated it with taking him, knocking him at source and then trying to counter rook barge and and then their line spacing as well was excellent. So all you can do is look back at it and go, well done. They they got their analysis right and they got their strategy right and they targeted what they needed to target and they won by four points. So that was what it took to beat a pretty good Ireland side. And we've got to give a special mention right to, to Johnny, to Johnny Sexton. I mean, his contribution to Irish rugby has been absolutely immense. 118 caps over 14 years, 1,108 points for his country. I mean, he He's going to leave some legacy, isn't he? And a beautiful moment at the end of the game where, where Luca looks up to him and said, you're still the best dad. I'm, I'm even like getting emotional thinking about that moment now in my head. I, I mean... That aside, that the legacy he's going to leave is just going to be phenomenal. 100%, I think. What he has done since he's come into the setup in, in 09, I was there for his first cap. We played together internationally for five years with club for six years. And he got better. He got better with age and his body didn't ail like lots of other people do. They break down, they fall apart. And that's usually what brings on retirement is the, the mind and head is still able to see it and, and is as hungry as ever. But the messaging from head to body to react and get into spaces and pick the right pass usually dissipates, whereas it didn't with him. You know, his ability to be an on-field coach, to bring the standards up of everyone else around them, to make them believe he has been an absolute giant in Irish rugby for the achievements they've managed to deliver over the course of the last 10 or so years, you know, won everything except a World Cup. And so you have to give massive respect to him for being the catalyst for that next generation to really believe. Yeah, listen, I thought the way that Andy Farrell and, and all the Ireland players have spoken subsequently with all that disappointment, I think they, they deserve nothing but credit. And a special mention for the best fans of the tournament as well, Absolutely. by the way. Absolutely incredible. Brian, we've got to talk about the other epic match. I mean, all four quarterfinals were amazing, but... Having the four top teams in the world on one side of the draw was was madness, really. But clearly, the other team that really lost out over the weekend was France. Uh, an incredible game of rugby. 
two tremendous sides, six tries in the first 30 minutes of the match. It's probably one of the best halves of rugby I've ever seen. It's a one-point game, fine margins. It's obviously a real shame for the host to go out at this stage. I know it's not quite over just yet, but what's your take on the tournament as a whole in terms of the atmosphere and, and that game as a showcase? Was it epic, wasn't it? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, talking about that one, that was definitely one of the games for the ages. It we just had everything, the uncertainty right to the very end, you know, some questionable refereeing decisions, you might argue, if you were a French, um, maybe rubber the green if you were South African. Three knock-ons, yeah, in the first half alone. They rode their luck, and then they did bring another level of intensity that I don't know if we've seen in this competition. Like even their performance in that game comparatively to the one against us in the pool matches felt like it was another couple of rungs higher. It really was. It was gladiatorial rugby. That's what it was. It was a throwback. That's a good way to describe um, it. I mean, I mean, you've got to give credit to South Africa because tactically their selection, you know, people raised eyebrows, but I just thought that tactically the way that they'd analyse even that kick from Ramos, everything that they did, they brought on Pollard and Faf de Kler, And you've got to say that their bench just, you know, they broke France really eventually. Didn't Micah they? Smith was absolutely outstanding when he came on as well. And I think everyone, I was certainly one going, really, Vili LaRue on for Willemse? You know, at this stage of the game, I don't know, it, it kind of felt like it was a little bit negative. It was a bit trying to defend the lead, but what they did do, you know, Faf was excellent. We know how good he is defensively and obviously getting that rip at the end, but he's he's such a nuisance. Um, Pollard kicking a 52-metre goal, and just playing super securely. Tactically, I agree. They just played magnificently well. Their scraps, their ability to win 50-50s, you know, on kick chase, regathering possession, and then their power game when they did get down into French territory. And they had such belief in their scrum. And, and it was typified when Willems had caught that 22. And I have to say, I'll be, I'll hold my hand up. I did not know that there was a rule where you could call a scrum. None of us, <laughs> literally, none of us. I mean, it's quite a ballsy call, right? Let's have a scrum in our own 22. You got to... You well, got... well Mas, I was going to say as a forward, how would you feel if one of your teammates well, had done well, that? Well, listen, they, they had the scrum, they won the penalty and they moved on. But I mean, we were all looking at each other going, well, what is he? Done. Saying guys how amazingly they were tactically means that you are giving credit to Rassi. Do, do we do we need to give Rassi have you, any more have credit? You have you just seen him? have you just seen what he's done? He's unfollowed everyone on social oh. media and he's only following England, England rugby. rugby. England rugby. Yeah. yeah. We had that specialness for the uh, for the final pool match against Scotland, where he only followed us in Scotland. So, you know, <laughs> next week, don't think that he's going to remain an England follower on social media. I tell you, out with the old, in with the new. <laughs> One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Did you ever try and charge down a, a conversion? Because that, that's the first time I think I've ever seen. I never had ever the, well, I never, had, never in my life had the pace to do that. Well, it was funny because Danny, <laughs> Danny, energy. Danny Kerr got very close <laughs> to doing it actually in the England game as well. But is, was it something that you did? You just stand on the no. post, Brian? Did you ever try it? No, it was usually about you were sucking diesel by the time you got yeah. back there. It was like <laughs> regroup and just get it together. And it's a bit of a thankless task the vast majority of the time, but. A bit like running a support line. And actually, it's worse than that because a support line, there's a chance you're going to get offloads and whatnot. You might get one in 100. You might get one in 200 of a block down. So to run that consistently, and maybe Cheslin has, has looked, because you, you'll, you'll definitely analyze opposition 10s and 9s around their box kicking and, and their speed of exit plays. So you do feel as though at times there's an opportunity to get well, out of yeah, the like, yeah. yeah. I think World Rugby will get rid of that. I mean, you, I don't... <sighs> I didn't like it at well, all. He actually, said in they, any way whatsoever. They played together. They they played together yeah. at Toulouse, didn't they, for six years? And he said he knew that his movement. As soon as he moved his chest, that was the start of his movement, and that's when he went. I mean, you looked at the wide angle, and and clearly he'd gone too early. Well, listen, he's, he 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 then scored a try two minutes later. So well, yeah. I mean, he's clearly got some. He wasn't sucking any diesel, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, okay, listen, we've got the semi-finals to look ahead to next weekend. Just before we do that, Lol, can you tell us what your big match moment uh, this week was? The big match moment with the Samsung Galaxy Tab S9 Ultra. Bring the big match to an expansive display. So many to choose from. You know, I think Brian mentioned that the Geordie Barrett holding up Kelleher over the line, I think for me, has to be the moment, really, because... I mean, as much as I'm sorry to see the French go out, I'm not that sorry, really. <laughs> I mean, Ireland is a different matter entirely, and that was the game. You know, that was the game. So that was the moment for me. Okay. Um, can I pick a selfish one? Yeah, as you can an do England fan, Owen Farrell dropped goal after all the stick he was getting and everything that he's gone through. I think for at that crucial moment when England were slightly on the ropes, he held his nerve and he stuck that kick over. And I think as our captain... Yeah, he's, been, yeah, he's outstanding. Why is there so much hate for it? Well, it's, it's, well, it's not just that. It's, that. it's the England football team as well. You know, Gareth Southgate is today saying, why are you booing the England team? Your own players. Jordan right. Henderson, you know, whoever it might be. Owen Farrell. He's one of the greatest players the game's ever seen. It was never in doubt he was going to play ahead of George Ford. And it was never in doubt that he was going to deliver an absolutely enormous performance. I, I, don't, I don't understand the mindset, I've got to be honest. I didn't get it. I mean, being in the being in the stadium, I mean, I sent you a message, Law, as soon as it happened. I said, did you hear that? Because it was just, it was so loud, the booing, when his name was read out. And then I thought, well, perhaps it's because the crowd's mixed and there's, there's a little bit of French here and there's some Welsh fans who've bought tickets to both games. But then George Ford got cheered and then I went, no, that's that's England fans that are doing that and that's just that's just not on. Okay, well, let's look ahead to Friday night then and the first of the semi-final games where Argentina's reward for beating Wales is to face the All Blacks. You're welcome. Um, lol, um, we'd all previously said that we thought we were yet to see Argentina at their best in the World Cup. They always manage to pull it out of the bag, don't they, um, at a time during the competition. Um, and they certainly came out against Wales. But that New Zealand team, we've spoken about how ruthless they look. There's no way past, is there? Philosophy, Um, Well, listen, it's two teams that know each other very well. I just have this worry about 
New Zealand. And I said it right from the beginning of the tournament, you know, South Africa lost the, the opening game quite comfortably in 2019 to New Zealand. And they went away and they repaired themselves and they came back and won the tournament. And I still feel that whoever won that Ireland-New Zealand match is going to win the World Cup. And, and my view hasn't changed. You know, New Zealand are far too good a side, you know, to be worried about one defeat. And they've come back and they're building their way into the tournament. They're getting stronger and stronger. And I think that they'll deliver uh, another standout performance uh, against uh, Argentina. Because, Jacko, I mean, you you know, like, Contemponi pretty well, one of, one of the coaches. I, I think it's true what we were saying, isn't it, before that match against Wales, that they, they kind of always have one match in them during the World Cup. And that Wales game... Game. I mean, that you kind of feel like that was their match. Yeah, Wales be shooting themselves in the foot as well. You know, the the that those minutes just before half time. You know, they're kind of those championship minutes you talk about. They just weren't able to close it out, and they just let them in and gave them a bit of momentum into half time. Argentina. I was involved in the cap presentation before the World Cup. I went and had dinner with Michael Check and Phil and the coaches. And they were quietly confident without being cocky or, or arrogant. They thought, you know, they were happy with where they were at. And then they played that first awful game against England, really never got going. And even I, it was actually, I was at the Japan-Argentina game uh, last Sunday week and they were okay, in parts decent, but but defensively a bit harem scare as well. And I thought, gosh, they're going to have their work cut out against Wales, but all it takes, you know, it doesn't matter how you get into a quarterfinal, then deliver your biggest performance. And that's where Ireland have come up short in the past, but where Argentina haven't, where that's the third semi-final now against a team that not many people give a huge amount of credit to. You know, I don't think anyone would have thought Argentina could win this World Cup, but here they are in a semi-final, massive favourites, the All Blacks. But I'm looking back at the Argentina victory down in Christchurch last year and trying to get a sense as to what do they need to do against yeah. this New Zealand And opposition. you know Checa really well, obviously, as well. Like, he, yeah. he's no mug, is he? <laughs> no, he's not. Question. He's not. He's not. He's a very good motivator, very good guy to just get clear, concise messages. And no different than what happened in the Ireland game. The physicality of the game, which is is definitely an area that they will back themselves on. If you can at least get parity there, would you give yourself a chance of giving a platform to your backs and then you need a bit of X factor, which they've got a bit in you know, the Carreras boys. Um, and then in Buffelli, they've got a really good goal kicker as well, which they needed in, in Christchurch to keep the scoreboard ticking over when New Zealand were going well last year. And then they, they got it done in the second half. So they've got... The components to concern New Zealand, I just feel as though if we see that all-black performance that we saw last week, I, I just don't know if there's that many sides that are going to be able to live with that speed and, and accuracy and, and quality. So, yeah, strong favourites, the, the all-blacks. But, yeah, now a few of us will have our... I, I, Blackrock College was a was light blue and white. And so <laughs> I'll, I'll go back up into my attic and try and find an old jersey. This, this is um, what Jacko does. He makes me emotional and cry again thinking about Ireland being out. And now he's making me think that Argentina can beat New Zealand in the World Cup semi-final. <laughs> oh, listen, it's a, it's a, that is a long shot. I think that's a long shot. Now, listen, Brian, before you go, on Saturday night, England come up against the juggernaut and current champion South Africa. Now, I think if all of us had been told at the start of the tournament that uh, England would be the only Northern Hemisphere team to make it through to the semi-final stage uh, and actually still haven't lost a game. You might have raised a few eyebrows, but uh, they've come home for a lot of criticism. Steve Borthwick is, uh, you know, was adamant in his post-match press conference that, uh, you know, people have written us off. I said, no, Steve, your performances before the tournament wrote you off. You lost three out of four warm-up games. Your captain and number eight were banned for three weeks. You know, you've got two players in the starting lineup that weren't even in the squad. I mean, they've defied all of that 
And somehow, Brian, they're there. I mean, clearly the Fiji match was probably their best performance of the tournament. Would you agree? I think, okay, the rugby mightn't have been brilliant against Argentina, but what they had to do in that game defensively, bring crazy physicality, manage the scoreboard, I thought, you know, from a strategy point of view and a control point of view, that was very impressive. They played much better rugby um, this weekend against Fiji. It was brilliant to see the way they started. And I think we got a sense that, that you know, England, a bit like the All Blacks, are, are rarely a, a poor rugby team, right? They have great quality players. It's just always going to be a case of trying to knit them together. And I, I have to say, I did really like the selection at, at 10 and fullback. I think for me, you always want Owen Farrell in your team, having spent some time with him as a young guy and watched him develop and grow. And so... I think he's a bit like Johnny Sexton where he inspires better performances around him and and expects very high standards. And then when you've got the X factor that hasn't quite fit at 10, we'll try him out at at 15. And I think it's the braver way to go and, and attack this tournament. I hope that they don't revert back to you know, expecting to be diffusing a lot of bombs. And so as a result, Freddie Stewart finds himself back in at 15, horses for courses, because... I think they have to think all out attack against these Springboks. You're not going to win an arm wrestle against them. I don't think there's the personnel in this English lineup to take them on physically the way you would ordinarily expect an England team to do so. Of course, they have to be confrontational, but I think they've got to think their way around this blitz defence. They've got to be very good tactically kicking and then be very accurate in defence. Again, strong favourites in South Africa, but if you're in a semi-final, you're not there to roll over. And if they can make themselves very hard to break down, they've got a good goal kicker, they've got a good set piece, they can cause South Africa some problems. They have to be brave though. You have to be brave. Don't go into yourself. Don't go, go and revert back to type a little bit. I think go out and fire some shots. And if you get beaten, so be it. But don't go down in an arm wrestle by 15 or 20 points. I prefer to see that by expressing yourselves and trying to get the ball to width and really create concern for the South Africa defence. Do you keep Smith at fullback, Lawrence? Oh, no way. No? No, I don't, not for me. I mean, listen, I thought it was a brave decision. I love what they do. It gives them that attacking impetus. But I saw Marcus Smith after the game. I mean... I think that modelling contract's over now. <laughs> bit, bit better. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. they, doing something extra. They were, they were absolutely... They were both up in the lips, did he? <laughs> oh, shit, tell you what. He, I could he, do some of that. Poor lad, was, he was brave because he got bumped a couple of times, semi-randranger. He was black and blue. He'd be a very sore boy. I mean, look, you could pick him. And, and as Brian said, let's, you know, don't go out with a whimper because if you try and take South Africa on in an arm wrestle, I don't think England have enough big men and enough power to do that. They've got to be smarter. And they've got to think a bit more differently. And, uh, you know, Smith offered them something that we haven't seen yet in this tournament. Okay, Brian, before we say goodbye then, um, the winners of the semis for you and then who lifts the cup? Yeah, I, I don't think anything really changes in that. You know, I, I certainly I felt at the start of the tournament that the, the likely winners and probably the likely finalists were going to come from, you know, pool A and B from our side of the draw. And I don't think anything changes there. I just can't see how this Argentina team will have enough firepower to take on the All Blacks. And then South Africa, I think it will take an incredibly good team to beat South Africa. I find them as the favorites for the tournament still, particularly on the back of what they did to the All Blacks and the scar tissue that must remain from that game in Twickenham only six, seven weeks ago. So for me, if you beat the Springboks, you're going to win the World Cup. Okay. Right, great to see you. Are you back to Paris now next weekend? Back to Paris. What day is it today? Is it Tuesday? It's Tuesday. Today? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm back to Paris tomorrow night. Oh, yeah, okay. so yeah. Good.
Yeah. As my wife said, oh, yeah, enjoy the lions. She's just come back from a trip to Valencia with the girls, right? Four <laughs> days away. <laughs> Her fourth trip of the year. And I'm like, she's actually a fog this one. <laughs> you get out and work. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm getting in trouble for working. I'm, I'm with Amy. I'm with your wife. <laughs> see you there, Brian. We'll see you there. See you later, guys. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thank you Cheers, for your time, Brian. as always. Cheers. Bye-bye. Take care, We'll have some big decisions for Steve Borthwick this week. One person with their ear firmly to the ground in England camp in France is the Evening Standards rugby correspondent Nick Puruel, who joins us now. Nick, ear to the ground, but um, you're upsetting Steve Borthwick, I saw in press conferences. Um, yeah, you asked him a question and he took great exception, I think. What did you ask him? My immediate response would be, which one? Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, I think uh, he's still quite annoyed about people, in his eyes, writing England off at the end of the warm-up games. But I'm sure this nuance isn't lost on Steve, but most people who were saying England were in trouble only said, if England play like they did in August in the World Cup, then they would struggle to get out of the group. Yeah. And he took that as, or at least publicly, he's taking that as people wrote us off and said we wouldn't get out of the group. But the distinction is clear because actually they said exactly the same thing, which was the performances in August weren't good enough and that they would be ready for the World Cup. And they were ready for the World Cup. So it's a, a hair's breadth of difference, but clearly it's one they're holding on to. And if that creates a siege mentality to drive them through, then I suppose fair enough, but it makes for some tetchy uh, press conferences in the meantime. Yeah, but they have rallied. They have produced their best performance of the of the campaign against Fiji. And look, I do think that siege mentality has played a part. Like When you think about it, a similar sense, New Zealand, not quite the same. Yeah. But that siege mentality of people, kind of, not you never write the All Blacks off, but do you, know, do you know what I'm trying to say against Ireland? It works, and I think it's worked it's, for England. It's an interesting approach, but um, I was reading Will Greenwood's column today, and he made some valid points, because obviously being over there with the other England fans who are let's face it, I'd say probably 99% of them are loyal followers of England and yeah. they want to hear from England players. The danger with the siege mentality is that it goes the other way and it alienates people and you don't hear enough from them because you want to feel part of that England setup, don't you really? Alice Genge coming out and saying, we don't care what you say about us, we're just going to do what we want to do. And it's a little bit, do you think it's double-edged, Nick? Yeah, well, I think there's a distinction between the players and the, and the staff not caring what journalists or, or commentators or pundits say but they've got to care what the supporters think and feel and say. And, and Steve Borthwick does, at least outwardly, always say that he cares a great deal about that. But if you blur the lines, I think it can start to get a bit boring, certainly for the supporters, who don't care about us. They'll read what we write if it's interesting to them, but we're not the story and we shouldn't be the story. 99% of the time, coaches and players rise above all that. And sometimes they don't even see it. Obviously, they all have. If it inspires them, if it gets them to you know the emotional pitch they need to be at to go and win matches then great, but they don't need to bring it into the press conferences. And they've said it plenty of times now. So we know that's what Steve thinks. We know he feels vindicated. We know he feels that they prove people wrong. It won't be enough to beat South Africa this weekend, will it? The siege mentality. Because however you dress it up, these are the defending champions. This is one of the best test rugby teams of all time they're facing this weekend. England, on paper, are nowhere near that. And that isn't being insulting. That is just bare-faced facts. And that doesn't mean that England aren't a good team. It doesn't mean that England aren't a team that can go and win tournament rugby matches. But it does mean that on paper and on the evidence of what they produce so far, they're not on the level of South Africa. So in order to go and win this match, which they can, because as we've seen in this tournament, anything can happen. In order to go and win this match, they've got to produce the best game ever under Steve Borthwick and the best game that England have had in a long time. So there's no hiding away from that this week. They've got to deliver. 
sort of the players been saying about the task that they have ahead of them? It's interesting because guys like Ellis, he needs something to rail against to yeah. get himself where he needs to be. And that's absolutely fine. The, the, one of the great things about Ellis Genge is he can have that and he can feel that very fiercely. But at the same time, he'll be absolutely polite, absolutely wonderful company. So he can have the two things going on at the same time. And I've got a lot of respect for that because he knows that's where he needs to be. But they're all handling it differently, as you might imagine. I mean, it was interesting that after the match against Fiji, Owen Farrell didn't really want to take the same tack as Steve Borthwick anyway. He's not particularly interested in that either. He's relaxed a lot in the last 15, 18 months in front of the cameras and in, in a media room or anything like that. And uh, it's to his great credit, we start to see a bit more of, of what he's really about. He's good company and he's, he's very calm, you know, in between matches and obviously turns it on for games. And guys like Danny Kerr are just can't quite believe that they're in this position, you know, <laughs> first World Cup quarterfinal, first World Cup semi-final. And it's brilliant to see, you know, a lot of these guys, Joe March in, in a similar sort of position, you know, he signed for Stade Francais because to all intents and purposes, he wouldn't say it, but he signed for Stade Francais because he thought his England career wasn't going to go anywhere. And all of a sudden he's in a World Cup semi-final and, you know, scored in a World Cup quarterfinal and he's an integral part of what England are doing at the moment so it's amazing how quickly things can change Steve Borthwick better than anybody ought to know that because of what happened in 2007 and of all the experiences he's had in an England shirt over the years good and bad so they've got a puncher's chance this weekend they really have and uh, that should be celebrated and I think it's time in this week just for you know them to get some smiles on their faces and just absolutely enjoy this week because whether they win or lose it it'll be over before they know it well, Nick, um, listen, thanks very much. We will wait with bated breath for Saturday's game and keep everything crossed that England can pull off a performance of a lifetime and seal a place in the final. Wouldn't that be just amazing? Well, that's all for this week's pod. We'll be back next week when we'll be recording in front of a live audience at Samsung King's Cross with our special guest, superstar DJ James Haskell, as we look forward to the Rugby World Cup final. For now, thanks to Sarah and Steve, and to everyone's favourite Irishman, Brian O'Driscoll. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Evening Standard Rugby Podcast with Lawrence Delalio. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions.